Well, it's that time for us to uh, open the Word of God together and rally around God's truth and uh, to uh, discover uh, what He has for us in the pages of His Word. And I'm excited to <clears throat> bring this last section of chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Take your Bibles, turn there to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 right to the end of the chapter and spill over to the first three verses of chapter 4. So you can have your hand ready there when we get to the text. Um, I want to say that uh, what we have before us is really another example of how we might reason with those under the sun who are separated from God. As noted already, Ecclesiastes is really shaping up to be a, a, an evangelistic book. I think you're seeing that, right? Even a track, Old Testament track, so to speak. It's meant to confront those with, un, with undeniable truth that comes just from life experiences common to all. So as you think about the many areas that you can speak to unbelievers about to show them their need of a Savior, you'll want to incorporate what the sage has here for sure. What he says is true, and no sane unbeliever can disagree with it. It becomes a powerful way, really, to lead someone to realize just how desperate people are without God of the Bible at the center of their lives. I'm very excited to show this to you. The context around which the sage speaks to his unbelieving readers, or his readership, is living with injustices and persecutions of every kind, which is living in bondage to those who are over you and who have more control and authority than you do. And in those situations, especially where you, you may have no recourse to get out from under such abusive rule, life becomes burdensome, doesn't it? Even unbearable in some cases. Uh, we hope we do have the hope we do have to give to people under the sun um, doesn't seem to be coming from anywhere in this world. Those that um, we talk to who are separated from God and feel acutely the pressure of, of injustices bearing down on them, who are desperate, what do we have to say to them? Well, we have something to say. It's not from this realm. It's really from the Word of God. The sage helps us out. In chapter 3, verse 16, to chapter 4, verse 3, he explains why injustice, as heinous as it can be and as heinous as it gets, can actually become a platform for leading people to discover the good news. Maybe you've never thought of this before. First, here's a summary that the sage of, of the sage's discussion. It's really a uh, a nutshell uh, that will clue you in on, on what I mean. I would summarize this passage this way, and I've published this in your bulletin for, for ease of, uh, of flow here. Uh, I'd like to say that God will judge rampant injustice in the world, but not before he uses it to show the godless that they are no different than animals and must turn to a God-centered life for lasting gain. For they cannot hope for anything better after death. And the culmination of an under-the-sun under lifestyle is less appealing than if they never existed. Wow. 
Really? Yes. I'm going to show you. Let's unpack this. Number one, God will judge rampant injustice in the world. Make no mistake about that. We read that in verses 16 and 17. And I don't have to tell you that we live in a godless age, right? Our world is godless. Ever since the fall, there's been godlessness, human injustices, and atrocities. They, the fall saw to that, as well as God's curse on creation and human beings. The sin of Adam brought the, the battle of the sexes. It brought the abuse of power. And here's the big one. It brought an ongoing battle between the godly line represented by uh, in Abel and Seth and the ungodly line represented by Cain, which is really a battle between the evil one and God's people throughout the centuries. The sage speaks in verse 16 of what he has observed in this world, which we, we cannot really pin down to any one particular city or state or time in history, but that's a moot point anyway since his remarks are really meant to be universally applied. What he says here in, uh, is true throughout the world, every part of the world. And we're, we're looking really at a, a global problem in verse 16. So here's what he says. I observed under the sun there is wickedness at the place of justice, and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. Now you're probably saying at this point, well, I can relate to that. That's been, uh, there's been plenty of injustices in the U.S. and much of it committed and prompted by our, our own government. We're seeing right now before our eyes instances of wickedness in the place of righteousness or right and just actions. And those hired to protect us and, and keep the law in the land are strangely absent when they should be visible and executing judgment on crimes. Two years ago, we watched riots, you may remember, in some of our major cities, leading, uh, led primarily by Antifa, BLM advocates. They were violent, burning parts of the city to the ground, looting businesses before they then vandalized them and assaulted many innocent bystanders. And rather than prosecute these people, our current government and media and state officials of the very states that suffered this violence applauded them and sang their praises. This is wickedness in the place of justice. But let's not think for a moment that any of this is unique to us or that it's unprecedented in the annals of history or that it won't get worse as time goes on. Injustice may be the order of the day in America right now, but it's always been a major part of human existence. And the sage wants us to see its global presence. It's part and parcel of a fallen world and a self-centered life under the sun. Now, there are many worldly, godless people who do have some sense of decency, relatively speaking, who, who do get riled, even hopeless over this context. They say something like, how long can this stuff like, uh, stuff like this go on? They complain. I mean, when is enough enough? Why isn't someone doing something about it? And some of them are not willing to wait, really, for something to be done about it, and they wind up taking their own action. They say, if the police won't do anything about it, and 
and, and, and love other law enforcement agencies are going to turn a blind eye, then I will fight to protect what is mine. It's all such a terrible mess, isn't it? And don't think that there are not plenty of Christians in this equation who are just as riled at injustice, and rightly so, we should be. Make no mistake about that. A time of injustice is a time of mourning. And a time of godlessness or a godless age is a time for grieving. Jesus actually cried, Luke tells us, just before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Why? From the rampant unbelief from the crowd that slammed up against him that day. Just from the unbelief. And while we should be grieved in our spirit at godlessness, at human injustice that reigns in place of righteousness and just judgment, and when violence and deceit prevail, we, of course, don't grieve the way the rest of the world does, do we? Now, we don't become retaliatory or even, or even return evil for evil. We don't try to manipulate or control the times in which we live for the simple reason that we know something that most people in the world who are outside of a covenant relationship with God don't. God will judge everything. Look at verse 17. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Now Jesus, way ahead in John uh, in the book of Revelation, tells John, I am the one who examines the minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Hmm. Really? Someone asks. Well, that's kind of hard to believe. How can I be sure? I mean, the oppressors are getting worse and richer, the oppressed are getting worse and poorer, what is there to suggest that God will judge when he hasn't already? And how come he hasn't already? I don't know how much more our nation can take of this. Look at the rest of verse 17. There is a time for every activity and every work. Do you see his argument here? God will judge the righteous and the wicked because... As we've already seen back in verses 1 through 8, there is a time for every activity and every work under the sun, including a time for God to judge all injustice that has occurred since the very beginning to the very end of time. Oh, I get it. We have to wait until the end of time before God judges the wicked intentions in the hearts of the godless. Well, that's just great. Most likely I'll be long gone before that ever happens, and until I go, I have to endure it and live with the fact that there are wicked people that are getting away with their wickedness. Yes, sort of. While there are immediate temporal consequences to the ungodly acts of wicked people, they will receive a comprehensive and just sentencing at the end of time. But that's not a truth to begrudge, beloved. If you're a Christian and you're disgruntled over this, then, well, you need to examine your heart and repent. 
because that's very much a sinful response. I've noticed that Christians often act as if God snuck in certain biblical truths like this in, in the fine print section of the Bible. Well, there is no fine print section in the Bible. And it's all there in black and white, as plain as day, and maybe, maybe they, they need to take the time to study it. And if they did, they would not be caught off guard by this wonderful truth. Wonderful? Wonderful truth? That I have to wait for wicked people to get their just desserts is wonderful? Yes. Yes, it is. In fact, it is a truth that should cause great rejoicing. God is the one who will just judge judgely and will in his time. And that should motivate you to live godly in these last days. There's also something else about this truth that makes it just as wonderful and just as motivational that would, cause, that would be cause for great rejoicing under the sun. And it will also help you to become more patient and accepting of God's timing. You say, what can possibly make our time on this earth more enjoyable when I have to live in a place where the inmates are running the asylum? When people, and especially people in powerful positions, are reduced to their baser instincts and act, well, no better than animals. Well, the answer is this. God uses human injustice to wake up the godless to the fact that they are no different than animals. This is the teaching of verses 18 to 21. And we read here that until the time that God will call every person to account, he uses human injustice to wake them up. Look at verse 18. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam. The idea behind this Hebrew word translated test is that God may prove them to be honest with themselves. That is, Put them in a situation that will open their eyes to their own depraved condition. God sovereignly uses the injustice that wicked people exact as a means of putting them in a position to learn something about their own depraved life. Many Christians don't understand this particular outworking of God's sovereignty, but it's one of the most popular in the Bible. God uses the very wicked intentions of depraved people for his own purposes and even for their good. Never think that the wicked are out from under the control of God. And while God is not the author of their sin, he has ordained their sin to become a means to one of his very godly ends, to create an atmosphere, a situation in which to place them so that they will realize from this vantage point a great truth that has up to this point escaped them. And what is that that God wants them to learn? He wants to lead them to the realization that there, are no, that there is no difference, or that they, rather, are no different, and that they are no better off than animals. And this goes for everyone, both the oppressor and the oppressed. Look at the rest of verse 18, that they may see for themselves that they are like animals. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I'm not making this up. 
Now, this is not just a figurative way of saying or talking about people who are predators and people who are prey, the oppressor and the oppressed. No, he's being quite literal here in his comparison. And we see this in the rest of verses 19 and 21. In the first place, they must admit that they are like animals in that they will die, right? Are we not like animals in that we will die? People die, animals die. Verse 19, the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. One dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And by the way, breath here really refers to air. They have the same air. They breathe the same air. The breath stops, they're gone. In the second place, because everything in life is futile, as the sage has been demonstrating up to this point, he says, people have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. If, if there's no lasting gain, no lasting satisfaction under the sun, well, people really live for the moment, whether they realize it or not, and so do animals. I have 12 of them on my property, 12 horses. They live for the moment. So do my dogs. In the third place, verse 20, the sage says, all are going to the same place, all come from dust, all return to dust. And that is, all go into the ground and decompose there. Just like animals, that's what happens to us. In the fourth place, and finally, the sage refers to a common belief in the ancient Near East about life after death. You might wonder where that came from, and I really believe it, it, it came from a degenerate a degeneration of the real truth that God spoke to Adam about. But that's for another time. This particular ancient Near Eastern common belief about life after death is not possible to know by experience. That's very important to understand. People of this world do not come to a view of an afterlife, if they even have one, because of what they experience in this world. You understand that? does not come from experience. Experience is really all that people have to go by, though, right? They cannot see it. If they cannot see it or smell it or hear it or touch it, then it just isn't real. Now, they can hope in an afterlife, but that's nothing more than a leap of faith, as they put it. And leaps, well, leaps are not based on reason and historical fact, as biblical faith is. So the bottom line of this fourth reality is that there is nothing from life's experiences that would ever indicate to those under the sun that their spirits and the spirits of animals go to different places when they die. Look at verse 21. Who knows if the spirit of the children of Adam go upward and the spirit of the animals go downward to the earth. Obviously there was some belief that the spirits of human beings go upward and the spirits of animals go down, down into the grave and that's it. But not so with human spirits. They kind of live on. How do we know that? Can you experience that? Is there anything in the world that might tell us that this is true? How do you come to that conclusion? The sage says. Hmm. How would you know that? Keep in mind, this last argument is not the view of the sage, right? You know that. But the view that comes from life under the sun that is separated from God. So we see once again the grace of God at work in the lives of the lost. The Bible refers to them as lost, you see, for good reason. They cannot find their way back to God, nor do they want to. So God in his sovereign goodness seeks them, finds them, 
reaches into their world, wakes them up to what reality is. And one of the ways that he does that, as we've mentioned already, is to bring them to an end in themselves, where they will become utterly frustrated with life under the sun. Now maybe you're seeing the importance of God tarrying in his end-time judgment, and why it might be a good idea. What will hopefully solidify this in your mind is the reason for waking the godless up. According to verse 22, it is to lead them to himself. Or we might put it this way, they must turn to a God-centered life for lasting gain. There's no other place to turn. That's the bottom line out of verse 22. And we're very familiar with this terminology by now. He says, I have seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. Now, this is obviously an abbreviated form of what we already found back in verses 12 to 15, you remember, which also begins with the phrase, I know there's nothing better. So the sage is not saying that people under the sun have nothing better than to experience what little fleeting joy they may get from their labor. While it's true that people under the sun without God in their lives have their reward already, to use Jesus' terms, the meaning here is different. The sage, the, the phrase rather of the sage, I know there's nothing better, occurs four times in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've already seen it twice. This is the third time. And it refers to the ideal life under the sun. That is, a life in a covenant relationship with God. A life grounded in an above-the-sun worldview. And since this is the same chapter, in the same chapter as the last mention of it in verse 13, just 10 verses away, the sage obviously meant for us to, to hark back to that passage for a full understanding of this abbreviated form in verse 22. The ideal life is a God-centered life under the sun and gives one the ability to enjoy this as a gift from God himself. The sage message so far in this book is that people must reach for this God-centered life that can be had under the sun. The gospel very much bids people come, right? Repent. That's, that's their responsibility, is it not? And this is what the sage is getting at. The ideal way of life is, he, is there. And God so runs a fallen world according to his will that they may see it so that he may lead some to embrace it. And God leaves injustices to run rampant in human society for this purpose. He wants to show transgressors the desperate estate before him, their desperate estate, so that they will turn to him and embrace him. Because the truth of the matter is, a God-centered life is the ideal. As he says, there is nothing better. What's the alternative? The alternative to the ideal is disastrous, both now and at the end of time. And we get this keen sense uh, of of this in the final section of our text. The sage argues that people under the sun who are separate from God, have no hope either now or after death. 
I've summed it up this way in, in our last section. They cannot hope for anything better after death. And the culmination of their under-the-sun lifestyle is less appealing than if they never existed. How bleak is that? That's, as, that's a bold statement and, and quite dismal and depressing. It drips of hopelessness and despair. Let's unpack it. He introduces two truths here. And you would present them, okay, as reasons to any willing listener under the sun that wants to hear you talk about spiritual truth. So, so as you spend time evangelizing them, you need to give them these reasons, which lead to why they need to embrace the gospel. Right? We've got to be thinking evangelistically, because that's how the sage is. That's how he's thinking. You would explain to this person that the only ideal way of life is the life that's centered on Christ, God's Messiah, because there is nothing about a self-centered life that can ever inform him, much less guarantee him, that there's something better that awaits him after death. Nothing. That's verse 22. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. This is the first truth or reason the sage gives and that we need to give. person who is alienated from God and has no understanding of God's special revelation that we call the Bible, not to mention it's completely foolishness to that person anyway, he has nothing in this world to go on that would give him any hope that he has a great and lasting reward after death. Nothing. In fact, to be specific, he has no way of knowing whether he is different from animals and whether at death his spirit goes to a different place than where animal spirits go at the time of their death. We read at the beginning of our, our service, we even opened with Psalm 49 in verse 20, mankind with his assets but without understanding is like the animals that perish. Where, beloved, where under the sun can a person go to find out what happens to him after he dies? That's a great question to ask those that we talk to about spiritual things. Nowhere. Nowhere. It's anybody's guess. The Egyptians believe that in an afterlife, that, um, that they thought they could take material possessions with them from this life that would aid them in the, life, in, in the next life. That's what they believed. Now, how do we know they believe that? Because they buried their mummies with all of these artifacts that they could take into the next life, that they would need to live in the next life. How do we know that, 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 we, that they got it wrong? Because possessions are still in the tomb with the mummified bodies. Ancient Greeks had a similar burial custom, believing that they could equip the deceased on his journey through the underworld by stuffing coins in the mouth of the deceased. Coins, you say? What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the coins were needed to pay the toll for the ferry across the river Styx. You, you know that. Guess what? The coins are still there. Others in this world believe that nothing happens when we die. Nothing at all. They explain, look, it, we, we don't go anywhere, okay? We just die and that's it. We're gone. 
No awareness after death in some spirit state, no alternate realm of existence. All one has is this life. That's it. It doesn't get any better than this. Well, if that's the case, then we're back to this grueling, depressing, defeating struggle called life where we have to put up or or put in a disproportional amount of energy just to eke out any satisfaction that doesn't even last. And more than this, we have to endure cruel injustices that make no sense at all. Sage returns to the topic of injustice that he began the chapter with to lead the readers to a frightening and sobering conclusion about life. And this is the second truth or the second reason that we can use to introduce the gospel to people. Let me show you what I mean. The sage starts by painting this very bleak picture of reality in which we all live in verses 1 and 2. He says, and again I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. There's nothing new here. In fact, it's all too familiar to us. We know that scenario exists to varying degrees all over the world, in our country for sure, and in our lives to different degrees. We're reminded of of this every time someone takes advantage of us and we have no recourse or no leverage to oppose that person justly. As we mentioned, ever since the current administration at Capitol Hill, there has been no end to the attacks on those that are a threat to their political agenda. Arresting people without cause, putting people in jail without due process, invading their homes armed and dragging people out handcuffed for no just reason. It's hard to believe that we live in America. We're all aware that last week the Biden administration sent the FBI agents to President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Uh, They came at night. They didn't hand over a warrant. They banished uh, Trump's lawyers from the residence so they could rummage around the entire house which is quite outside the limits of a warrant. The boxes of information they took were already promised to them months ago, by the way, when they had been to the residence to survey it all before. None of it makes sense, of course, unless you understand that there are powerful people in high positions of government that are trying their level best to prevent this man from ever running again. Whether you know this or not, whether you like this or not, whether you think anything of the fact that this is unprecedented, disgraceful, never happened to any of our past presidents in similar situations, the sobering fact is that there is nothing that says that they won't do it to you. Nothing. Does that make you uneasy? It angers us to see injustices played out, sure, in any country, in any context. The use of a double standard by elite politicians. There is no recourse for those that are targeted by these oppressors, no consolation to the victims of their kangaroo courts. 
Now remember, the sage wrote this book somewhere in the 6th or 5th century BC. And the reason it sounds eerily like our own times is because, as I said at the beginning of our study, injustice is universal. It's all over the place. It is par for the human course of life under the sun. It comes with a fallen world run according to God's will. And if there is no guarantee of something better that waits for a person after death and living the rest of one's life trying to find satisfaction amid such oppression is all one has to look forward to, then the sage's conclusion in verse 2 is that it is better to be dead. And this is not an advocate, he is not advocating suicide, by the way. This is not, this is not that. He says, so I commend the dead, that is those who have already died, who have already died more than the living who are still alive. And that's because at least according to the under the sun worldview, it is better to be dead like animals and and, and lose all consciousness than to have to suffer through any of this. Actually, the sage goes on in, in, in one step further in verse 3, and he says that the only thing better than death is to have never been born at all. Wow. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed who has not seen evil activity that is done under the sun. Can you see where the under the sun life and worldview ends a person up? This is what we need to talk to people about. Utter hopelessness. He cannot hope for anything better after death, and the culmination of his life under the sun is less appealing than if he had ever existed. Wow, what a commentary on life. Actually, what an indictment on life under the sun that is not centered on God. Well, Jesus addressed people in his day who were confined to an under-the-sun worldview. Remember, injustice and suffering are universal and part of an undeniable theme throughout history. And living in it can be exhausting and defeating, always fighting for some profit, always having to protect your assets, always trying to maintain some level of sanity in your life. And religious people have the added tension of having to secure a right standing with their God by performing good works that are defined by their religion. For the Jews, it was keeping the law and man-made traditions of the rabbis, all the while living under the bondage of a Roman superpower. In Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus addresses those under the sun who are separate from God And he offers them the ideal. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest. Rest. What a delightful concept. Music to the ears of the oppressed, of the suffering, even of oppressors who are constantly having to look over their shoulder to see if someone might try and usurp them. But Jesus' rest does not promise an end to the rat race here. Make no mistake about that. Nor will it make you immune to injustice and suffering. 
In fact, those things have been known to increase in the lives of those who take Christ up on his offer. What then does it mean? What does he mean by rest? He means an end to a life lived by an under-the-sun worldview, which promotes the delusion that one can wind up with lasting satisfaction here by his own efforts. Rather, Jesus says, lasting satisfaction comes from God as a gift. And I have secured that gift for you by my work. And if you want to enjoy what the true God has always intended for men and women to enjoy, you must come to me for it. And this rest is a figurative way of speaking of deliverance. Again, not from life under the sun, but from its worldview, a satanic worldview that keeps people in bondage to their sin and and ungodly ways and apart from enjoying a relationship with God himself. Rest is salvation that can begin in the life in this life, the moment you accept it, and it dead ends in heaven, a better country where God himself dwells, where there is no oppression, no suffering, no corrupt authority, nothing but the blissful and comforting warmth from the glory that shines from God's own holiness. The salvation, this eternal rest, is what puts us at rest now while we live under the sun, those of us who have accepted it. How so? Someone might ask. Well, Christians experience the outworking of this rest in service to Christ. True disciples of Christ who wait for heaven and live under the sun, they live in such a way that they they know will be true of them in heaven someday, you see? In other words, they live the rest they live that rest the way they will enjoy it in full in heaven. In this way, they can plow through the trials, plow through the tribulations of life without despair because they know to whom they belong and to where they are going. And living this way is not burdensome. It's not wearisome. Jesus says in the rest of verse 29 and And into verse 30, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is comfortable, and my burden is light. Yoke implies submission to Christ's way, the -the above-the-sun way, which Christians demonstrate by obedience to his word, the Bible. They look there for how they should carry on in all situations here. And burden implies work. It's light. Christians are not passive, they're not inactive, they're very busy folk. They're busy about the Lord's work. They find this work a joy, not a burden, because by serving Christ, listen very carefully, they invest in eternal reward at the end of time when their faith becomes sight and their rest is fully realized. Paul, the apostle, would say momentary and light of fiction is Affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.16 In conclusion, I want to say that the rest that we true disciples have received is not conditioned on anything in this world. That's so wonderful. 
Rather, it is centered in our relationship with God. So our feelings and our state of mind are not dependent upon the change of our circumstances. You see? True disciples will always be at rest and enjoy a deep and abiding joy even in the midst of trials and suffering and oppression. Even when even when they mourn over things that are truly mournful. We don't grieve like the rest of the world. It makes no difference what takes place at all around us under the sun. Our joy, our hope, our holy laboring and growing in Christ, all of it is found, founded on a relationship with the Lord himself who changes not as reflected in that great hymn that we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Listen just to the first verse and refrain. Great is Thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of changing with Thee. Thou changest not Thy compassions, they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever will be. Great is Thy faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Our Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us and your faithfulness to us. For so ordering our lives in such a way that we would come to an end in ourselves, that we might see how desperate we are, before a holy God and then cry out for mercy and trust in the words of eternal life. We pray that those in earshot of this message would do the same, that, Lord, they would be brought to an end of themselves and all they need to do is really be honest with themselves in this world under the sun, that they would see that there is really truly no lasting gain, it's all fleeting, and that there is the uh, death, the great equalizer, which prevents any from taking it with them. We pray then, Lord, that you will so work in the hearts of those that we, that we evangelize and that you, will, that you will open their eyes and their ears to hear the good news and why it is so good and that until then they may know no peace, no rest until they come to rest finally and comfortably in Jesus as Lord and Savior, Master and Friend for your glory and for the good of your church. Amen. Amen. Amen.